Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra. And this week's a little bit different because we're going to talk about a historical moment in biotechnology. Now, if you ask any scientist that studies crop biotechnology what they were doing in September 2012, you probably get an eye roll and an offer to sit down for a long, tragic story. Now, just like how some people know where they were when Elvis died, when they heard of the Challenger disaster, or when Y2K descended on the year 2000, many scientists and science journalists were permanently stung by the events surrounding this controversial scientific paper published in the journal Food and Chemical Toxicology. You remember this one, the Seralini paper, right? Now, papers that appear in peer review at least in decent journals, they have a special place in science. They navigated a typically rigorous peer review process and are generally regarded as a gold standard of evidence. And that's why this paper, featuring three rats, their bodies swollen in all dimensions with massive tumors, caused such a massive uproar within the scientific community, across all media, and with the population in general. It was because the tumors were apparently caused by the consumption of genetically engineered corn, along with the herbicide Roundup. Now, this report would ignite an explosion of controversy. It would arrest development of technology to the food insecure and firmly affix three miserable rat faces to the discussion of crop genetic engineering. The paper changed public perception of technology and forever affected how scientists engaging the public on a topic with profound scientific consensus, as all the data in the world didn't stand a chance against the specter of life-shortening cancers and the onset of degenerative disease. Now, even today, the iconic rodents have evolved into the ratty little faces of a bankrupt movement. The paper, despite its shoddy design, its bad launch and its lack of independent reproducibility shaped the views of a generation. And it represented a harbinger of poisonous scientific disinformation and denial that many of us fight until this day. The study found that rats fed by Monsanto's Roundup Ready corn over the course of two years had increased levels of tumors and mortality compared to the control group of rats. Story that will make your stomach turn. A French study that was just released finds rats are, that are fed genetically engineered corn suffered from tumors and severe organ damage. In Brussels, thousands of protesters have hit the streets calling for an overhaul of European food policy. The rally came as a new French study claimed rats fed GM corn produced by US firm Monsanto had suffered tumours and multiple organ damage. Opponents of genetically modified food demanded an urgent review of the... What's happening to rats being fed GMOs? Is this what can happen to humans? Absolutely. We're seeing a huge uptick in cancer 
among our population, diet-related diseases, gastrointestinal disorders, allergies amongst Close kids. Close attention to what you are about to see. These images will be seen around the world. These rats have been fed with transgenic corn during their entire life cycle. The tumors they suffer from are enormous. Following years of doubt and controversies, will we finally know the truth about GMOs? As far as medicine or biology is concerned, there is no need for further testing. see the huge tumors in these rats. They also died prematurely. They also had damaged organs, liver, kidneys, pituitary, and in some cases, hormonal imbalance. Now, he wanted to find out whether it was the Roundup or the, or the corn or the combination that caused the problem. So one of the experimental groups just ate Roundup Ready corn that was never sprayed with Roundup. Another group was fed the Roundup Ready corn that had been sprayed. And a third group was fed the Roundup without the corn. These are the three groups, all three groups multiple massive tumors, early death, and organ death. This means that alone and in combination, it's the process of genetic engineering, it's the roundup, and, the, and together cause these problems. The information exploded across the internet. Today's Talking Biotech podcast is a series of interviews with scientists and journalists that reeled from the release of this work. We'll hear from the journalists that were forbidden to see the data before they were released. We'll hear from the scientists that reacted to the work upon publication. We'll also hear about the long-term effects of this apparently motivated science as three lumpy rats derailed the deployment of needed biotechnology for the food insecure and reinforced notions of risk in this really helpful technology. In order to understand the devastating effect of this particular paper on the advancement of technology, we need to put our finger on the pulse of what was happening at the time. In late 2012, California was trying to pass, or at least some folks were trying to pass, Proposition 37, a bill aiming to label food items containing ingredients that originated from genetically engineered crops. And you had activists and, and lawyers pounding the uh, airwaves with commercials saying that the food was poison and we must label it. We have a right to know. On the other side, you had scientists. You had others who were saying there's nothing magical in a, in a food ingredient from a genetically engineered crop. It's just the sugar, starches, oils that you would find in any other crop, but not any different. But the idea was there. Many activists felt that this was a necessary trick to eliminate the demand for genetically engineered crops, essentially putting a skull and crossbones on that label. So the timing of the Seralini paper was at least curious. And here are the thoughts of Dr. Allison Van Eenenem a specialist in cooperative education at the University of California, Davis, and her thoughts on the curious timing of the release of this paper. It was pretty obvious that it was a, 
a politicised paper. At the time, I was quite involved, uh, along with several other scientists at UC Davis, in answering media questions about the mandatory labelling of um, genetically engineered products that was on the ballot as a statewide initiative. I had been doing a lot of work with the media and the timing of this, well, highly suspicious, I guess I'll put it that way. I don't want to sound like a, you know, a conspiracy theorist, but the timing was such and the, the lack of, um, you know, reporters that got it weren't able to contact independent experts. And then it segued into the Dr. Oz show. <laughs> it, it really appeared like a coordinated um a campaign and the timing was highly suspicious uh, I guess would be would be putting it mildly and that would be putting it mildly the paper came out in September 2012 only two months ahead of when the vote was supposed to take place so what better way to motivate people to uh, vote for this labeling initiative than to scare them to death with information that says the food inside those containers will kill you. So you better label it or you'll end up like one of these uh, rats. (laughs) And it was all set up in a way to generate that fear and uncertainty. But what exactly were the experiments in the paper and, and why was it so bad? Here's Miles Power. Dr. Power runs a YouTube channel and also works in the area of chemistry. He gives his interpretations. So I first heard about the paper when a friend of mine challenged me to debunk it. Uh, You see, a few months prior to it, I wrote a few articles and made a few videos talking about GMOs, something that I'd never really been interested in before. But in 2012, I found myself in San Francisco where there was a lot of hoo-ha about Proposition 37. My friend said, hey, there's this new paper that's about to come out. It's about to be published. And it shows that everything you said about GMOs is completely nonsense and that GMOs are in fact dangerous. Not only are GMOs dangerous, but a herbicide used alongside GMOs is also potentially dangerous. So he sent me a link to this paper, the long-term toxicity of Roundup, blah, 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 blah. And straight away, I noticed flaws with it. The number of rats that they used in the study was far too low. I think they only had 10 rats per group, and there were only 10 groups in total uh, with two different sexes. And I was like, okay, there's something odd here. It feels kind of disingenuous or it feels like this this paper really shouldn't have the oomph that it has. And then I thought, you know what, I'm going to look a little more into it. The first thing I'm going to look into is what kind of rat did they use? You know, how how did they design the experiment? What, you know, food were these rats having? And straight away, there was just flaws. Um, the rat that they used, the Sprout Dowley, is known to spontaneously grow tumors. And the first thing I did was look at these rats and see, you know, hey, what, what, how bad is it? And it turns out that, yeah, this is, this, is, this is well known. So straight off the bat, this paper <laughs> was rubbish. And not only that, you, you kind of look a little bit deeper and you see the images that come along with this paper. And you see that actually they only had three rats uh, in these images of the um, the ones that were fed Roundup contaminated food, the ones that were fed GMO food, and the ones that were cont- um, fed Roundup and GMO food, but there was no control group, and that was immediately a red flag for me because it kind of implies to the reader that the similar kind of tumors wouldn't be found in the control group, and that's a load of nonsense. And I remember this; I remember feeling quite 
angry about this because I'm deep down very much a drippy hippie. I'm very much a tree hugger. I care a hell of a lot about the environment. I care a hell of a lot about animals. And to see the pictures of these rats clearly in distress where a ridiculous percentage of their body mass was tumor and they looked like they're in a lot of pain. You know, I, I just saw red. and I, I just saw this paper for the fraud, for the scam that it was. So one of the main red flags in this paper for me was how the data was represented. It wasn't in a nice, neat table, which is what you would expect. Instead, it's in these weird, really badly designed graphs where instead of bright colors or some kind of table to go with them, it's all dashed and dotted lines as well as arbitrary cutoff dates. I, I think that is done on purpose. It, it's deceitful. It's done on purpose so people can't nitpick the data. Because if you look at the actual hard data, if you're able to pull data from those graphs, which I've done, you will find out that it actually says, this is how badly the experiment is designed. It says that, you know, male rats that were fed a diet containing large amounts of glyphosate will live longer. And that's something that I think a lot of people who promote this paper don't take the time to actually well, look at or to understand. It, it's a case of having a badly designed experiment and then trying to find what you wanted to find afterwards. And here is Professor Stuart Smythe from the University of Saskatchewan. What you were able to start to see was that the credible scientists in, in credible institutions were approaching the question not as objective scientists, but with a deliberate research bias because the the rats they used were used in cancer research studies. So the rats were designed in the control group were obviously going to get cancer tumors because they had been bred to, to develop tumors so that they could properly test cancer drugs. And then when you use them for an experiment like this as, as your control group and, and the experiment group, you were going, it was guaranteed to generate tumors. So it was never about testing glyphosate. It was it was all about ensuring that they could generate cancerous tumors. And it's really hard to gauge, you know, what was somebody thinking? But there's a couple of important tells. The main figure that had the impact was a picture of three rats, one that ate GMO corn. And it said right on the panel, GMO, not transgenic, not with the construct that was in there, not the you know, whether it's herbicide resistance or, or BT, but GMO. Those three letters were critical to put next to that rat full of tumors. The next one, R, for Roundup. And they could have written the whole word maybe, and it would have been a little more clear, but um, that one had tumors too. The next rat, GMO corn plus Roundup. So it wrote GMO plus R. That right there is a real tell because scientists don't use the term GMO typically. Uh, it's, it's imprecise, it's scientifically meaningless. And so one could make the argument that the purpose of this was to juxtapose those three letters against that tumor-laden rat. But the real tip-in for intent was the lack of a control. Because the rat that didn't consume this stuff, the rat that had whatever, regular feed, uh, also grew tumors too. If you placed that control rat in that figure, it loses all of its punch. So how does it still have punch? How did it still captivate the media and travel through social media virally? 
how did this get so much traction? Well, typically we have journalism to protect us from scare science that trained professionals with access to experts can help us ensure that information is properly vetted before being released to the general public, or at least stand as a counter voice to that which is being projected by motivated individuals. But this wasn't the case in this particular paper. Here's journalist Joan Conroe to talk about what happened that made this Seralini paper a little bit different in its release to the press. When the paper came out, there was a really interesting strategy that seemed to be well prepared, quite well cooked, in fact, um, around a number of different routes for to get this information out to the public. First of all, before the paper came out, there was a, a, a press release that was given out to some some journalists, apparently. And they were allowed to come to this um, presser. However, they had to sign away some kind of rights about like not talking to anyone else before before they were um, allowed in, um, before that they were before they were going to publish their stories. They had to only get the perspective of the Seralini team. A similar story is told by John Entine. He's the executive director of the Genetic Literacy Project. It was like remarkable. It was a it was a circus act coordinated for literally months in advance. Every study today uh, has a pre-release period. In this case, that was not done. Scientists are generally interested in dialogue. They want to know where they might have made mistakes. Here, it was presented as a public relations effort from beginning to end. A a group of, of, of connected people planned a strategy for months um, around the release of a, of of a, study by a highly controversial, at that point already discredited um, figure in the biotechnology community. This person had developed a, a documentary video series that was going to be released the day that the article was released. They would not pre-release it in any form so any reasonable scientist or science journalist could review the data, how it was collected, how it was analyzed, what some of the assumptions were. And it was accompanied by a swarm of articles by what I would call ideologically uh, compatriots of this group, in other words, activist organizations who had gotten the pre-release of this and had had days, in some case weeks, and some case months to prepare for D-Day. An article came out within, I don't say hours, within minutes, there were quite a few thousand um, posts by um, friendly, when I say friendly scientists, I mean ones who have bought into the idea that GMOs are controlling the world. It's an agribusiness conspiracy. The health dangers are unknown. Uh, um, uh, you know, a, a, a health and uh, agricultural food crisis is months away if these uh, technologies are implemented, all in political terms. But because they've had months to prepare, they were framed as if they were they were commentating in a high level science way, like they were contributing to the public wheel by exposing the underbelly of the agribusiness conspiracy. And as a journalist, I mean, here you are, you're, you're, you're fighting a, you know, California fire with, with, a, with a garden hose. And it, it took a while, the science press, people who took this seriously, who did not want to denounce this. Frankly, my first inclination was, Ted, what if this might be true? I want to find out. 
Other journalists were equally surprised. Here's science journalist, who at the time worked for the University of Saskatchewan, Michael Robin, as he observed what was happening around the release of the Seralini paper. Uh, how, how easily the science journalists involved, even with some very uh, prominent world publications, uh, were so easily led by the nose and hoodwinked over this. Uh, like they weren't allowed to, you know, have an advanced copy of the paper before publication so they could do their due diligence and talk to other toxicologists and say, okay, does this make any sense? Uh, they were basically uh, fed the line. You, you, do, you don't stand for that as a journalist. I was, I was appalled uh, that, uh, that people that were call, would call themselves science journalists uh, were so interested in getting a scoop and getting out first that they were let, let themselves uh, actually be party of this uh, uh, huge bit of, of misinformation and disinformation. Uh, I looked at the Seralini paper and as soon as, because it, it ran all, rang all kinds of uh, alarm bells for me. And I started looking as to where these people came from and what their uh, affiliations were. And, and there was actually a homeopath in there. It's like having a scientist that would co-author a paper with a witch doctor. So I was quite disappointed in the, in the quality of journalism on this one and how they were so easily led down the path. Again, here's John Entine. Nothing that happens in the anti-biotech community, and, and I know it sounds like I'm talking it's conspirat conspiratorial terms. We have since found out that there was an entire network of communications that involved journalists, involved scientists, involved public interest groups, all of whom knew this information in depth, all of whom had a set of talking points, um, and all of whom literally on day one began um, swarming social media and flooding um, Twitter, um, Instagram, uh, other, other media outlets like that with, with, with a propaganda line that it almost felt like it was, a, it, was, it was Kremlin developed. And they executed extremely well. They controlled the narrative for, for a, a maybe three, four, five days, and then there began to be pushback. That initial foray shapes opinion and sets the tone of an argument, sometimes forever. And in this case, it's been forever. And they, they, they literally lined up data to, to come to a predetermined point of view. And it was frightening what they got to because they were propagandists. They, were the, they became the anti-science scientists. And what was frustrating as a journalist is that the journalists didn't get that for a large part. It took years um, from, from, from 10 years ago when the Serlini report came out to, I'd say, 19, uh, 2017, 18 when, when it was just by then, by then, five, six, seven years, it was widely accepted that Seralini was an ideological crank and the people around him were, were essentially demagogues, many of them financially paid, but others of them just, you know, surviving on the high of ideological extremism um, and, and wanting to execute their worldview. So this idea of limiting the journalistic access to a scientific report, which apparently had lots of internal flaws, was apparently a very well-coordinated release. But who was the institution that would condone such behavior? Here's science communicator and scientist, Dr. Mary Mangan. 
so this institution, Cryogen, and the uh, group of researchers, including homeopaths and folks like that. So Cryogen is this Committee for Independent Research and Information on Genetic Engineering, and they had been trying to attack GMOs for years and years. The GMO threats weren't materializing, no matter how hard they tried to force the data to, to confess to it. They switched to blaming Roundup for things. They switched to blaming heavy metals and pesticides as their attempts to destroy GMOs were failing. But they all this time, they had claimed to be defenders of the... Um, the safety of genetic engineering, which they didn't think was safe at all. So Crygen actually had a series of meetings, apparently. And this was discovered by a French blogger, Yann, Y-A-N-N, Kindo, K-I-N-D-O. But he discovered that in the Crygen archives, they were discussing this all along. And they were discussing the fallout of this. And one of the things that happened after this was that the reputation of Seralina was being tarnished by this the way that Jan cites this in his piece in Google Translate says, um, Cryogen appears shaken by the return of the boomerang of which it was the victim after the 2012 study. So what sort what seemed to happen was this own media frenzy and their overstepping their their claims here really seemed to backfire on them. And, and that's what I, I remember, too. I remember a lot of scientists who hadn't been very active in social media before saw what was going on here and reacted to that. And one of the things that was a problem was apparently Wikipedia. And what happened was, and this is right in Cryogen's own documents, um, one of the members of Cryogen, her, a homeopath named Isabel Chiavo, she went into Wikipedia to edit it, and she tried to start a fight with a Wikipedia editor so that editor would be banned from actually editing things that were counter to the narr narrative that Crygen wanted to. Without disclosing her conflict of interest, which is not allowed on Wikipedia, you, you are supposed to declare if you have a conflict with, like this on Wikipedia. She was uh, trying to go in and manipulate what was written on the Wikipedia pages because it was harming their funding from the sources that they'd been getting from. They had a lot of relationships with like organic food marketers and... Um, uh, groceries in France, apparently. This was hurting their funding situation, this controversy. So they actually sort of shot themselves in the foot with this as well. So here we have a crazy Venn diagram, a perfect storm of a, a organization which has been committed to disparaging genetic engineering, a paper which seems to have some major flaws that's not being delivered to the journalism community as it normally would be, yet is being released into social media by friendly forces that can distribute this disparaging information far and wide. But what did the scientific community do? The pushback was pretty swift. I mean, I remember looking at this paper and thinking, I gotta do something, and I wrote a letter to the journal. But what did other scientists think? Here's Professor Smythe again. My response, Kevin, was that this has to be, you know, really very poorly constructed and, and, and undertaken research because GM crops are tested for, for exactly this through rat research in terms of 90 day feed studies. So, you know, the, the 29 countries that are growing GM crops and the other 40 countries that import GM crops. So, so regulatory agencies in 70 countries around the world have ex assessed exactly this and not one of them were ever able to, to identify any concerns 
like what Seralini and his his group found. So this clearly was was an outlier, and and it really made you want to investigate to see, you know, was are there their results credible or why is this one paper so different from the hundreds of other studies that have been done? So it was reassuring to find out that this this was deeply flawed research. And Dr. Smythe really frames the question. This appeared to be outlier research that because of the timing and all of the issues with access to journalists really said there was more to this than meets the eye. Not only did the data not fit with everything we knew, the circumstances around its release seemed highly suspicious. With that in mind, and other issues at work, the journal retracted the paper. Here's Miles Power talking about that retraction. So this paper was retracted, and really the reason why that happened was because of the immense backlash against it. The entire scientific community seemed to stand up and say, hey, no, this paper is fundamentally flawed. And I'm not just talking about people who are pro-GMO. I knew people who are very against uh, GMO technology, people who are very against the herbicide glyphosate, who said, hey, you know what? This paper is so fundamentally flawed that it's making us look weak and it shouldn't be out there. And also there was the ethical side of this paper. Um, the rats they were allowed to grow tumors to the point where I think it was 25% of their body mass was tumor. That's incredibly unethical. What do you get from doing that? And people saw this and they were rightfully disgusted by it. And they wrote in to say, hey, you know what? This, this is not cool. This is not kosher. Please, you know, think of how this is going to look for your journal. How is this going to look for the scientific community? You're just making a mockery of it. You know, this paper needs to be retracted. Now, some of us applauded that move. Others said, well, once you accept it, you accept it. But it doesn't matter either way, because shortly thereafter, the paper was published again in its original form with no further review in an entirely different journal, Environmental Sciences Europe, a journal which has kind of become the catch-all <laughs> for lots of work that uh, maybe was a little bit suspect. It also seems to have a little bit of an agenda. And that was shown again in republication of the Seralini paper without further review or adjustment. This deeply flawed paper found a place in the peer reviewed literature among gold standard papers that had been reviewed by scientists and scholars and given a seal of approval as legitimate work. With that validation, this paper would live again to erode trust in science and scientists, as well as have numerous impacts at the international level. That paper continues to have an impact today. I'm actually at an international regulatory harmonization um, conference right now about animal biotechnology. And even to this day, people still talk about the impact of that particular paper. Um, and I think when legitimate scientists spoke out to criticize that paper, there was a real effort to to suggest that those scientists were all paid off by industry. And that kind of back and forth and suggestion that everybody's on the take, um, it does erode trust in science. Um, and I think that this kind of suggesting everybody's a tobacco scientist when, in fact, scientists speaking out around this technology are mimicking 
what the scientific consensus is. That's the opposite of tobacco scientists, right? It's it's the scientists that are saying things that don't agree with the weight of evidence that have to be looked at with with great scrutiny because they're not talking about the weight of evidence supporting their opinions. And so certainly you can have disagreements in science and that's part of our scientific process. But when groups consistently come up with data and studies that go against what everybody else is finding and and the findings of every scientific society in the entire globe, (laughs) that's when you've got to start going, what's going on here? This doesn't seem right. Um, And I think that trying to create this, well, you know, we really don't know 50% of the scientists think this, 50% of the scientists think that, when in fact 99% of the scientists think one thing, which agrees with the scientific evidence, and 1% are saying something very contrary, that's not uh, a 50-50 proposition. That's And suggesting that is creates false balance. And it, I think that is um, where we start to lose trust in science because it's like, well, no one seems to know, you know. So like, I guess we, you know, we really don't know. And whereas, in fact, in this case, around the safety of the approved products, it's pretty settled science. Um, and I, I think that to suggest that it's a 50-50 proposition is really creating false balance in people's minds. So when I first read this paper, I was fresh out of university and I had stumbled upon bad papers before where I'd found in the lab that their conclusions were incorrect or what they were saying was more blatantly wrong. But I'd never stumbled upon something that was deceitful before. And it was really eye-opening to see my fellow scientists capable of doing something like this. They obviously had a, a motive for producing something that is, is fraudulent. Uh, and that people would allow animals to suffer just to get their ideology out there. I, I was really quite taken aback by it. And it was a moment in my life where I, I had to stop for a second and realize that, you know, everything in science isn't as rosy as they tell you at university. Well, science isn't as rosy as they tell you at university. You see the problem here. This particular work was breaking the trust, not only of the public, but also of scientists. Like, what are we publishing? How is it getting done? And most of all, why does it seem like there's intent to misinform? And this was the major problem. But a potential remedy? Replication. The work was creating such a stir and and such a distrust in science and in our food supply that the EU commissioned three independent studies at the cost of something like 15 billion euros. And what were the results of those studies? Here's journalist Joan Conroe. I was was particularly annoyed when the European Union studies came out that essentially showed that there are no problems with consuming these GM crops, uh, with this GM, with Roundup Ready GM maize specifically. And when those studies came out, I mean, and nobody could accuse the EU of being a big fan of GM crops. And they did three studies to try to address this issue in a very transparent way. Yet when those studies came out, groups like GM Watch immediately denounced them making claims like they hadn't made all of the data available, which was absolutely ridiculous because even the raw data has been published, so anyone can look at it. 
also claiming, well, they never replicated Seralini's studies, but the intention was never to replicate a bad study. It was to answer the question that Seralini ostensibly was trying to answer himself. Are these crops safe to eat? And I think that the EU studies, you know, put that to rest and showed that that Roundup Ready GM corn is safe to eat. And um, that long-term studies, feeding studies were not needed to further uh, verify that. And so unfortunately, that message has never gotten the same kind of publicity that the original bad study got from Seralini. Well, I, I mean, as an, as an animal scientist, I know there have literally been hundreds of peer-reviewed studies done on feeding genetically engineered feed to livestock. And in fact, not only peer-reviewed studies, but we now have literally 20 years of experience of feeding genetically engineered crops to our livestock populations globally, effectively. Um, and if there was deleterious impacts on their health, we would have seen it in our production animals. Their, you know, their performance would have gone down. They, I guess they also would have large tumours. <laughs> and, you know, we just haven't seen that. And, and there's been a couple of um, studies that have exactly reproduced what Seralini did, but using a rat strain that's advised for long-term studies rather than um, the Sprout Dolly, which is not, um, and they haven't seen the same results. And, and those studies get very, very little media attention because, you know, it's so much harder to to reassure people and, and to publish effectively negative data showing, showing no tumours um, than it is to frighten them. The literally billions of animals that eat genetically engineered food their entire life every day of their diet and have no health problems, you know, that that's what the, the facts are, but it's, it's hard to uh, make a sexy meme out of that. Um, one of the first things that came out was some of the journalists um, started to complain about this. In fact, uh, Deborah Bloom called it a rancid, corrupt way to report about science when, when the whole story about um, the control of the press release and who you could talk to came out. Journalists said, Although Aransky notes that news outlets later updated their story, the first accounts are all still enjoying an uncritical ride in activist circles such as this one from Francis Lamond, where I assume the agreement was signed and which almost reads like a press release. And so here we had direct testing, asking the same question that was asked in the original paper that actually said that what was found in the original paper probably wasn't true. So here we had what appeared to be intent that was not reproducible. And this right here should have put the entire issue to bed. The problem is, is that it didn't. The papers that came out that showed that the original work was incorrect never got much traction. And Dr. Van Enenim's assertion that many animals are eating 100% or near 100% genetically engineered grain. So something coming from corn or soy actually directly not the, so, not the oils, starches, and sugars, things that we consume. They're eating the actual grain itself. No problems. So all of the evidence suggests what we already knew, that these things were safe. Yet we've seen a decade of pushback of people holding up the Seralini work as legitimate science, supporting the position that these foods are dangerous. The big problem is it breaks trust in science itself, as well as scientists, and the food supply. 
it, when Seralini and, and and collaborators came out with this study, it, it got a lot of press, uh, and and so ex, you know other legitimate experts pushed back and and created you know highlighted the the flaws in the design and and the results, and and so when I think the the public became aware and 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 heard the the interactions, it it just reduced trust overall. In the legitimacy and and the role that science plays in in modern life, and, and I think we've seen that carry forward even through the the COVID vaccination process. That people are, you know, still have uncertainties about the benefit and the the role that science plays in in ensuring that that we're living as healthy a life as as we possibly can. It really did harm the discourse for a long time, and their fear mongering did actually work. They were com- countries that shut down import of, of GMOs in the outcome of this, and that was really unfortunate. But on the other hand, I think it did mobilize scientists to understand the ways that bad science was being peddled, the way that they were able to use the media and the the journal system to accomplish these things. I think it raised the awareness of this. But I do think that despite the bad science and the bad claims that came out of it, I think there was some benefit for science and the scientific discourse. I believe this paper did a tremendous amount of damage, not to the agricultural sector around the world, um, but to science in general, because it's really difficult talking to people in the street who quote this paper and getting through to them that there are junk papers out there that can get through peer review, that can be published in decent journals and still be utter rubbish. It really erodes away all the hard work that scientists and people have been have been doing for hundreds of years. I think it's damaged. Uh the credibility of, of uh, science to somewhat, but it's not all dark. Uh, like when you take a look at some of the trust barometer things, like we have a thing, a thing up here in Canada called the Adelman Trust Barometer, and you look at what various scientists uh, or various groups, what their, what their trust is, uh, trust levels are. Um, and still, uh, farmers are way up at the top of that. People do trust farmers. And uh, university scientists and uh, even government scientists are, are up there uh, as trusted sources, uh, which is, uh, I think, a good sign. And I think it's probably why uh, they come under such heavy and concerted and focused attack. Uh, you need to, if you're going to change the messaging, you have to discredit the other side thoroughly. And that means going after the most trusted uh, people on the, on the other side that, that is basically talking against you. And we can argue all day about the questions of trust in science and how this paper affected that, that actually there probably were some cases where we did see a benefit, a silver lining from understanding how the peer-reviewed system could be exploited to post information that seemed to have motivations in affecting a ballot initiative in a completely different country. But the idea here was perhaps to change the tone around genetically engineered crops. And we saw effects of this happen everywhere. Reverberations were seen not only in in the United States, North America in general, but throughout the world, sometimes affecting the most food insecure populations. First up, here's Alvaro Diaz Bedrigal, who discusses the way in which the Seralini paper affected 
acceptance of genetically engineered crops in the country of Peru. The paper was essential in turning Peruvian mainstream media and public opinion against GM foods. It cemented the idea that GM foods are not safe. Of course, the article made it to the headlines, but it was only about the headlines and not about the data and the sound scientific criticism and heavy questioning that the article received once the data was released. Why wasn't the data released from the start? He wanted to make it to the headlines. He didn't want to make science. Uh, years ago, it's it's still having an impact on agriculture in a, in a lot of parts of the world. So, so for example, at the start of the year, Mexico announced that they were going to, to phase out the import of GM corn and, and ban glyphosate starting in 2024. And, and this goes back to Seralini's work that the Mexican government is, is even basing its decision on this, the validity of Seralini's research to ban glyphosate there. It, it's had an impact in, in Sri Lanka. They banned glyphosate um, for, a, for a period of years after the study, and, and they just found that, that it was causing um, too high an, an economic cost, and so they, they had to relent. But other countries around the world have, have have gone this route as well. Vietnam's poised to to phase out glyphosate, and a lot of this goes back to the fundamentally flawed research that, you know, he carried out with deliberate bias, and it's now impacting um, food production and food security in in food insecure parts of the world, which is you know absolutely a horrible outcome. What I found happened after the Seralini report was released. Um, particularly in Africa, is that it came out at a very sensitive time when Kenya was considering whether to adopt a GMO moratorium. And those people who supported the moratorium used Seralini's study to support that moratorium. And even though that study has been discredited, um, in recent attempts to reverse the moratorium, they continue to cite the Seralini study as one reason why the moratorium should remain in place. India was another country that was influenced by this and um, it has continued to be influenced by this at a time when they were considering whether to commercialize BT Brinjal, which had been already approved in Bangladesh. Then the Seralini study was cited for that, as well as when they were attempting to commercialize GM maize. And so it has also been used in India to try to stall the increased um, adoption of commercial uh, increased commercialization of GM products in India. Yeah, I can remember in 2017 when I visited Uganda to help the parliament understand what was happening with the safety of genetically engineered crops. And the pictures of those rats were front and center in the argument against it. And here, a food insecure nation that had scientists on the ground in Uganda who were generating solutions for Ugandans were told they were wrong and that the folks who generated this report, this retracted controversial report, were right. It was a heartbreaking moment for me as a scientist because I realized that the solutions that were created would not necessarily serve those they were intended to serve because of essentially a report that didn't pan out and wasn't reproducible. Yet its legacy stood in the way of progress. Here are some other thoughts 
on the long-term problems associated with this particular paper. Really got me interested in the anti-GMO hysteria. And, and until this point, I'd really not been interested in it. I was more interested in vaccines and crazy conspiracy theories and things that were really UK-centric. Um, and then when I stumbled upon this, I realized there's an entire world out there of nuttiness where people want to give, well, basically want to make GMOs the boogeyman. And they have no qualms with just making stuff up or torturing animals to do so. And I realized this is an entire world out there where not many people are up there standing up to it and saying, hey, no, this is a load of rubbish. This is a load of bollocks. These people don't know what they're talking about. So I jumped on that market and have been making, uh, I guess, videos and content online ever since. One other thing that came out from this was the GM, the anti-GMO groups were saying that government uses scientists when it suits their purposes. And I think we can see over and over again, I mean, that is another one of those projected claims by the anti-GMO groups, that no matter what you put out there, it becomes this whack-a-mole science. It's whatever study is put out, it's never good enough. It never answers the questions to their satisfaction. And it becomes clear that there is no scientific answer that will satisfy these people. It's, it's an ideological and or commercial concern. And so trying to solve it through science um, is, is not going to be possible. But at the same time, you can't play dirty like Seralini did and put out a really tainted study and then try to claim that's legitimate science. Um, I, I think the tide is turning, but the damage they've done is irreparable. They've set back um, you know, if you go all the way back to 2000, they, they've set genetic engineering and agriculture back uh, 15 and 20 years, and they've left the legacy going forward of suspicion that's going to mean that the road ahead will never be easy. Essentially, it could be a 30 or 40 year drag on innovation that's that's been created. And even today, the narratives of these crazies is given a high level of credibility among um news organizations, people like uh, the uh, organizations like the Guardian of England, which, you know, outside of its science reporting is, is, is quite, quite, quite capable. Um, and, and they should be ashamed of the propaganda that they're willing to swallow to promote a, uh, a clearly dangerous uh, as well as scientifically bankrupt idea. Globally, the, the number of impressions that that image had and, and that paper getting retweeted, I don't think I was even on Twitter a decade ago, to be honest with you, I didn't even know what retweeting meant. Um, but it it had a lot of, even back then, a lot of social media coverage. And of course, there was, you know, Kenya banned the, the import of genetically engineered products. And I think France did too. And, you know, who really cares what Europe does? But when you're in a food insecure nation and you're making arbitrary decisions based on misinformation that's created by an image like that, that's a real social justice issue to me, um, if not an, you know, an ethical um, foul. Um, I just, I think that that's, uh, you know, un unacceptable um, behavior. And, and certainly, um, I, I don't know how scientists can deal with, with that consequence when they know that, that they're creating this fear around a technology that the, the data doesn't suggest uh, has any health issues. And that, I, I don't know how they live with themselves. The one thing that I'm really surprised about is how long this has been going for. This paper was published, oh, like 10 years ago. 
And yet I'm still seeing the images of the rats. I'm still seeing people promote this fraudulent, I keep repeating that fraudulent paper. And it's really surprising. It's, it's, there's, I think there's two classes of people who promote this paper. There are the people who don't know it's fraudulent and just see the horrific images and just read the conclusion and think, aha, we've got you. And there are the other people who I really can't stand, the people who know that it's wrong, the people who know that it's fundamentally flawed and the people who don't care and they keep promoting it. And the thing that I really hate about it as well is that it's almost given the green light to similar studies allowing people to torture more animals to get horrific images so they can try and scare people uh, into scare people about a technology that they just for some reason don't like i guess it kind of opened my eyes to to information as a weapon and uh, i guess it's been around for a long time we've seen it in politics now and we're seeing it more than ever now with social media uh, but i think this was my first um my first dip into science communication or science messaging used as propaganda uh, to twist, uh, to, you know, make money, to, you know, uh, get rid of your, uh, your market uh, uh, competitors, all sorts of things that they might use this for. Uh, so I guess perhaps I lost a little naivety that day. And to those of us that see biotechnology as a solution rather than a problem, I guess we all lost a little naivete that day, if not a little piece of hope. Our dreams of technology serving others were in a tenuous position already. Golden Rice had already been defeated for over a decade. The EU was not approving new GM crop varieties that farmers really wanted. And a fledgling campaign against the herbicide glyphosate was just getting off the ground. That's when Huber wrote the letter to Tom Vilsack about the uh, mysterious secret organism. You know, that was 2011. This paper was a shot in the gut, not because it was bad. It was a shot to the gut because so many people accepted it and celebrated it and used it as a nucleus to promote an ideology that ran contrary to the hard scientific consensus that we helped build. Those three tortured rats, they became emblematic of an anti-technology movement, a group of modern day Luddites that, that oppose technology even though it can benefit farmers, it can benefit the food insecure, it can benefit the environment, and it can help the industrialized world consumer with higher quality, less expensive choices. Time will not be kind to the Seralini paper. And it hasn't been already. The real story here might be the failure of the scientific establishment and the mainstream media to not stop this from happening dead in its tracks. The fact that a semi-relevant late-career Google dead scientist has to piece together this story by interviewing people uh, perhaps is the real tragedy. This article was a scientific watershed. It was a political, motivated, and in my opinion, constructed experiment spawned to push an agenda and fit a warped ideology and perhaps even influence the outcome of a ballot initiative. 
this is the kind of thing that should have made headlines. It should have made headlines for its lack of reproducibility. It should have made headlines for its lack of uh, concordance with the scientific consensus. This is a special issue of the Talking Biotech Podcast. I thank all the contributors who took their time for interviews, and I hope you look into the show notes for their social media contact information and follow them. Better yet, follow them and share their posts. This is how we change things. It's taking the many voices of the credible information, the people who who are the experts, in sharing their information in a kind and, and, and high road way, that's the way we chip away at the legacy established by those three lumpy rats. The picture of the three tortured rats was shocking. It's going to take many years of slow, incredible science to unravel the tragic distortion that they left in their wake. And it needs to be said that the opinions expressed are those of the individuals expressing them and not Kevin Fulta or the University of Florida. And uh, don't write nasty grams to my employer. This is not a university function. This is not a university product. And in fact, they have told me to not do this product. So I do this on my own time, my own dime. And it is 100% separate from the university, even though such extension and information about modern technology should be a critical part of the university's portfolio. But we'll agree to disagree, and I'll simply provide this content here on my own. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week.
You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.